Well, this week I read the interesting story of Stephen Marsh. Uh, Marsh lived in New Jersey in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was a poor man. And so when his aunt died in 1874 and her will was read, he was pleasantly surprised that she had left him uh, her entire estate. And the most important section of her will read this way, "'To my beloved son Stephen I bequeath the family Bible along with the residue of my estate after my funeral expenses and just and lawful debts are paid.'" After the funeral, uh, Stephen set out to settle the estate, hoping that in the end, there would be something for him to live on. He did have a little bit of a, a physical disability, and, and that uh, impacted his ability to, to earn money. But sadly, when all the bills were paid and everything was settled, there was only a very small amount of money left and a very, very small pension to live on. And the inheritance helped, but for the next 35 years, Stephen continued to live in near poverty. And then one day in 1909, he was cleaning out his attic. Uh, he was preparing, because of his financial situation, to move in with one of his adult sons. And as he was cleaning out the attic, he came across uh, the Bible that his uh, aunt had given him. And uh, he opened it and began to leaf through its pages. And to his surprise, he began to find banknotes. And so Stephen thoroughly searched through every page of the Bible and got, you know, got out all the notes. And when he counted it all up, it came to $5,000, which in that day was a small fortune adjusted for inflation. That's hundreds of, thousand, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1909. I'm not sure how much it would have been in the 1870s, but it was uh, plenty. Uh, and the point is, inside that family Bible, there was a small fortune. There were riches that Stephen could have enjoyed the previous 35 years instead of living in near poverty. And as I reflected on Stephen's story this week, I thought it illustrates a very important truth about the verses we're going to come to today in Ephesians. In our Bible, there are incredible riches that we often don't uh, perceive, we don't appreciate, and we don't even begin to enjoy. We can live in a kind of spiritual poverty, not understanding the true riches that the Bible explains are already ours. Clearly, that's a truth the Apostle Paul is concerned about. You can see that by his prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1.15, and we'll look at his prayer. Ephesians 1, verse 15. In God's providence, we're coming to Ephesians 1 this morning in this prayer by Paul uh, at a very appropriate time to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And we've already spent a couple weeks looking at this prayer, and my argument as we've been studying it has been that it is a good model prayer for us. It is a good template we can use when we offer intercessory prayers up for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we ourselves and all of our brothers and sisters desperately need what's in this prayer. So, let's look at what Paul prays. I'm going to read uh, verses 15 down through the middle of verse 19. Paul says, "'For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him.'" I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, I now pray that You would give to each of us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the true knowledge of You. Please enlighten the eyes of our hearts to understand Paul's inspired mind and what it is he means by coming to know the riches of the glory of your inheritance and the saints. I pray for this, for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was just saying earlier, Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, is one prayer, it's one long prayer that Paul offers for the Ephesians, and I'm preaching it as a a model prayer, an example prayer for us to pray. Uh, And by its very nature, by its very existence, it raises some implications that we need to talk about. We don't need to leave application till the end of the sermon. Just the fact that Paul gives us this model prayer begs the question, do you pray for the spiritual advancement of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is your prayer life virtually non-existent, and then when it does exist, you're only praying about problems that you face, and so in a way it is very self-focused. Or maybe to put it another way, if God were to answer all the prayers you've prayed for in the last month with an immediate yes, He's going to immediately give you everything you've been asking for in the last month, would it radically change the lives of everyone around you, or would it just change your life? That's what this prayer brings up for us. Are we praying regularly, as Paul prayed, for our brothers and sisters in Christ? This paragraph's very existence is a reminder of the importance of praying for other Christians. And Paul not only uh, shows us the importance, he gives us a model. It it would be uh, almost as if not only does Paul tell us to pray, we should pray, he tells us how to pray, and he gives us a pattern to follow. For example, we see in verse 16 that his prayer, his example was he prayed regularly for them. That's the idea of praying without ceasing here doesn't mean that Paul prayed for the Ephesians every minute of every day. It means that it was a regular part of his life to offer up intercessory prayers for them. And he also mingled his very concerned requests with thanksgiving. In other words, he was balanced in his prayers for them. Yes, he saw the problems. Yes, he saw the dangers. But he begins this prayer with thanksgiving for their genuine faith and their love for all the saints. Returning thanks to God and thanking Him for the good you see in the people you're praying for is a very important part of having a balanced life of intercessory prayer. And Paul models that for us here. So we see that there is a built-in exhortation in this prayer. We see that in this passage there's a pattern for how Paul prayed that we can imitate. But much of the riches in this passage are contained in the content of precisely what Paul prayed, which raises the question, when you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, what will you ask for? What will you pray about on their behalf? Well, here what Paul prays for is something where he's putting his finger on a problem that every single one of us faces. This is a problem that every single one of us needs help with, and it gives us insight into this issue of spiritual growth. You see, even though we've all, uh, who, we who are in Christ, we've all responded in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus, even though we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures available to us, we still need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We still need what English-speaking theologians have called illumination. 
And this illumination includes knowledge. First and foremost, it's a true knowledge of God, verse 17. And then verses, verse 18 and following, it is a knowledge, a true knowledge, of the good spiritual gifts God has given us through Christ. And so central to this idea of illumination is the idea of knowledge, but it's a knowledge that is more than just cognition. It is a real, vital, thorough, loving knowledge of God that embraces Him and celebrates Him, enjoys Him for who He's revealed Himself to be. Uh, But these enlightened uh, eyes, this heart that has to be enlightened, it, what it's doing is not just knowing these gifts, it's awakening to the value and the worth and the delight of these gifts God has given. Now, there's three of these gifts listed. Uh, the first gift is the hope of our calling, and the word calling here is being used synonymously with our salvation. So, it's, it's the, the gospel that God has called us to, it's the salvation we've received, and all that that salvation entails. Uh, We've been justified in the past, we're being sanctified in the present, we look forward to being glorified in the future. That's what's intended by calling, not just pardon from sin, but also all that is bound up in receiving salvation. But it's also crucial as we think about this first gift to remember that the Greek word for hope and the English word for hope mean two different things. The English word for hope gets used often uh, in our own language like a wish or a desire for something that's uncertain. But the Greek word for hope includes both the desire for something and the certainty that we'll receive what's promised. In the Greek New Testament, hope is an absolute certainty as well as an expectation of something not yet received. So, note then the impact of what Paul is praying. The hope of the Ephesians' calling, and now our calling, is it's an objective reality. We have been adopted into God's family. We have already received justification. We are being sanctified, and we will be glorified in the future. But Paul is praying that Christians like us would have a subjective, experiential, personal knowledge of this hope. Uh, that we would see it for what it is and have joy from it. And then the second gift Paul prays for is for, uh, it's in verse 18, uh, it's this, that we would know what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now, this second blessing is what I want to look at today, and admittedly, that phrase, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, it is really awkward to bring into English, okay? And also, I'm concerned that it could be confusing and off-putting to an American audience. But if we just slow down and interpret it, there are wonderful riches to be found here. So, to unravel it, let's begin by asking this question. Whose inheritance are we talking about? We know from other passages in the New Testament that God is giving all the saints an inheritance in the life to come that we should look forward to. We also know that the idea of God inheriting something, it seems a bit odd, right? He is the ancient of days. Uh, he, is, he existed before the cosmos and before anyone. It's not like He's waiting for someone to die to receive an inheritance. So, who is this inheritance for? Is Paul really talking about God inheriting something? And the answer is yes. Let me give you four reasons why. Number one, 
The inheritance Paul speaks of here is his, pointing back to God, that pronoun is pointing back to God, it is his inheritance, not our inheritance. The Apostle Paul knew the Greek word for our, and he didn't use it here. He used his, pointing back to God. This is God's inheritance. Number two, the inheritance here is in the saints, not for the saints. Uh, we're not receiving an inheritance here. We're described as the inheritance. The, the estate that is inherited by someone else is described as us. Number three, in the preceding paragraph of thought, in verse 14, we who are redeemed are called God's own possession. And if through redemption the saints become God's possession, it's not a far-fetched thing that the saints could also be called God's inheritance. And then number four, God calling His people His inheritance is actually something He Himself does often in the Old Testament. See, what makes this a little awkward, and I, I listened to other pastors preach this, I read commentaries, and it, this threw some pastors and commentators for a loop, because in the New Testament, uh, God's people are not often called His inheritance in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, this is actually a very common way that God refers to His people. For instance, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. Jeremiah 10, verse 16, speaking of Yahweh, says, the maker of all is He, and Israel is the tribe of His inheritance. And so, what Paul is talking about then is coming to know the riches of the glory of God claiming us as His inheritance, or coupled with verse 14, we could say it this way, of God claiming us as His special possession. Paul wants us to grasp the riches, the exceeding worth, the surpassing value, the amazing glory of God choosing to make us His own people. Because of His love, God has adopted you as a son or daughter into His family and made you His special possession. Think about what this means then. Let's stop and think about what this means. Meditate on this. What this means then is that the most important, most interesting, most powerful most influential, most creative, most famous, most beautiful person in the cosmos has chosen you. He wants you to be His son or daughter. Uh, and we know that He wants you and I not, this is important, not because He's lonely or codependent or desperate for a relationship. Uh, and I can prove it to you from Scripture. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. He, he knows that He's about to go to the cross. Um, it's during the Last Supper. He knows He's going to go to the cross. He offers this prayer on behalf of the disciples. Um, he, he's dedicating them to the Lord because He's about to go away. And in that prayer, as He prays to the Father, there is a portion He comes to where He lets us in on seeing the love and communication and perfect companionship that the Trinity enjoyed before the cosmos was created. God didn't create the cosmos and mankind as made, his, as made in His image because He was lonely, and He's not adopting people into His family because He's lonely. The Trinity is love and perfect companionship and fullness of fellowship overflowing. 
So then what this means is God has chosen you to make you His special possession, not because He's lonely, not because He's needy, but because He loves you. Now, this speaks to a very important part of the human heart because all of us want to be wanted. We want to be known and loved. We want to be chosen by others to be their friend or on the team or in the inner circle. Uh, many of us, we, we want a special someone, right? It, we want a husband or a wife uh, who's desirable to us to want us back, right? We want to be wanted. And the glory of the gospel is that in redemption, God is obtaining a people that He loves and chooses and wants to have as His inheritance. And so, this is what Paul is praying for you, Christian. Listen carefully. Paul is praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're not guessing, to know that God wants you as His own. And not only does He want you as His special inheritance, He considers it to be an extreme uh, wealth, an extreme, a super abundant inheritance, right? It's not just that it's a rich glory for us to be God's treasured possession. The language Paul uses here is the riches of the glory of His inheritance. And in Greek, the idea there is that this is an inheritance that is of supreme value. This is, uh, this is a, an overabundant inheritance that God is receiving. And that begs the question, well, but according to who? By what valuation? By what standard? And the answer is God's standard. According to God's own judgment, this is what His people are to Him. They are a superabundant, rich glory. We are God's most extremely power, uh, valuable possession. Now, this entire concept then reinforces why we need the spirit of revelation that verse 17 talks about. Because let's take revelation off the table, all right, and try to reason about this very issue. If all we were left with was seeing God's eternal power, uh, right, and, and His divine power as seen in creation, and God's law written on our hearts, our conscience bearing witness, then what would happen is because our knowledge of sin brings a sense of shame, it brings a sense of feeling morally unattractive, right, morally uh, undesirable, where that would leave us is that we couldn't understand God's love for us. Because how could a good, a good and just God love people who are as wicked as we are if, if the basis is His law? That's the logic we would be left with if God hadn't revealed His heart to us in His Word. But by revealing His heart to us, we see that God loves us and He wants us as His treasured possession, and He's not just saying it. It was out of love that He gave up His only Son to be a sacrifice for our sins. It was all for love that Jesus left heaven, added humanity to His divine nature, dwelled among us, and then voluntarily went to the cross. Maybe we could think about it this way. Uh, when it comes to our stories, right, we all love a good story, we love good novels, we love good movies. Um, what are the kinds of stories we like to tell? What is the best kind of plot, the best kind of story? We have a bunch of choices, right? We got fish-out-of-water stories, mistaken identity, rags-to-riches, we, we, have, we have comedies, we have tragedies. What's the best kind of story? Well, I think the best plot, well, and also we have any story that has any kind of redemption in it, I'm a sucker for, 
It just shows you I'm a Christian, so I, I'm a sucker for any… If there's any redemption at all, I'm like, oh, it was a good movie. Uh, and so, uh, what, what, what makes the best stories? What's the best plot? Well, I would argue that one of the best plots is this, slay the dragon, get the girl. That's, the, that's one of the best plots. Well, what is happening with Christ in the story of history? He's slaying the dragon and getting the girl, who in the New Testament is described as uh, the church. The, the, the bride of Christ is the church. And so, we're part of the best plot in the cosmos. He's going to slay the dragon. He's going to get the girl. But here's the problem, okay? And we, we need to be honest about this problem. It's not just the people outside the church. It's even those of us who are inside the church. We often look at the church, we look at the girl, and we're like, uh, I'm not, seeing what, I'm not seeing what he sees in the girl. It would be like, imagine if it were a movie. In the movie, the girl is introduced in scene two or three, and we're looking at her, and we're like, that's the best actress they could find? Like, surely they could have found a more attractive actress. And the reason why is this, because we look at the church, and we see all the blemishes. We see all the problems. We're aware of, of the great potential the church has in the New Testament, but then the churches we actually attend don't live up to any of that. And so, it's easy to see the blemishes. And I think uh, part of our disconnect as we watch this story of slay the dragon, get the girl, part of our disconnect with the girl is that we labor with two handicaps as viewers. Here's the first one. Honestly, we just don't love as God loves, right? If, if somebody isn't very attractive, we just don't love them. If they don't do something for us and what we want out of the relationship, we're ready to be done with it. We don't love like God loves, and that's part of the problem. But the other issue is this. God sees what the bride will become. He sees the bride of Christ perfected in all her beauty and we don't see her that way yet. We're not that we haven't been uh, to the next life to experience seeing what the bride of Christ becomes. And so often, all we see are the flaws. Uh, but God sees uh, what the bride becomes, and uh, and all those blemishes in the future will be completely done away with. So, if you then include this idea of Christ slaying the dragon and getting the girl, and you broaden the idea out to the church as the bride of Christ, there's a double enlightenment that we need. First of all, we need our hearts to be convinced that God has really set His love on us and really wants us in spite of our sin. But then we also need our eyes opened to what God sees in the church so that we can begin to value and love the church as Christ does. See, even those of us in the church of Christ who are we're members, we're meaningfully involved, uh, we see the flaws in the local church, we tend to see all the problems. We're, away, uh, again, aware of the great potential the church has but doesn't live up to. But when God looks at His people, He sees a super abundant wealth of riches that He's claiming for Himself. Uh, in fact, to illustrate how valuable he thinks this is, let me show you a portion of Scripture that shows the value he places on his people. Turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. We're going to look at three parables our Lord Jesus taught. In Luke 15, starting in verse 1, 
Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So Jesus told this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So in response to the Pharisees and their complaint, Jesus is going to tell three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And the focus of each parable is on the reaction of the, the, the climax, the highlight that, that we're meant to see is the reaction of the person doing the finding. Uh, and we're supposed to ask the question, who is this person? So, who is the shepherd rejoicing over the one sheep that was lost in the first parable? Well, who's, who's the good shepherd in Psalm 23? Yahweh, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, according to Jesus in John's gospel, Jesus calls Himself the good shepherd. Uh, Peter, right? The apostle Peter. Jesus is the great shepherd and guardian of our souls. And so, in the New Testament, the good shepherd is our Lord Jesus who's rejoicing over the sheep He's found. God is the one rejoicing over sinners who repent. Now, look at verses 8 through 10. Or what woman if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, I would argue with you that joy in the… well, let me read it again. I would argue with you that the joy in the presence of the angels of God is God Himself. It's His joy which fills heaven with happiness, with joy, with celebration, and the angels participate. I don't think the main point in the second parable is that angels rejoice. Yes, they're rejoicing, but they're rejoicing in God's presence as He rejoices over sinners who repent. And then, uh, in case you're confused at all about who's doing the rejoicing here, it's crystal clear in the next uh, parable. Uh, the next parable in the English-speaking world has been called the parable of uh, the prodigal son. And a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I referenced it in a sermon, and I called it the parable of the lost sons because I think there's a sense in which the older son is lost, or, or if he's not lost, he's lost his way because he doesn't share his father's heart of love for the younger son. But that's not what Harlan called this parable. Harlan's name for this parable uh, was, let me find it in my notes here, Harlan called it the parable of the loving father. And you know what? His title's best. His title's best because his title gets to the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable isn't the lost. So it's, it's the father who's rejoicing over the son who came home. And look at what the father does in verse 22 when the lost son repents and comes home. Verse 22, 
Uh, The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And then later, over in verse 32, the father has to argue with the bigger brother about why they had to celebrate, and he says it this way, But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Listen, the day when you came to faith in Jesus, there was a celebration in heaven. And it wasn't primarily the angels, although they participated. It was God Himself and His joy filling heaven with celebration that the angels then participated in. Uh, It was God Himself. He was rejoicing over you because He delights in you and He wants you as His son or daughter. And so, you and I need to pray that we can grasp the reality that we are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance and that we are His most valuable possession. And we need to comprehend the place that we have in God's hearts. And also, our loved ones, our our brothers and sisters in Christ need to comprehend this as well. God demonstrates His own love to us in that He actually wants us, has chosen to adopt us, and while we were yet sinners, sent His Son to die for us. You have a special place in God's heart, and that's what Paul is praying that the Ephesians and now you and I would come to understand through illumination. Let's pray.